Good morning, church. God is good. And all the time. It's good to be able to be able to uh, to come together and to worship God. Open your Bibles to the 127th Psalm. 127th Psalm. There are times in which our Bible studies, uh, at least for me, kind of intersect. Uh, on Wednesday night, we're studying through the book of 1 Kings. In the first part of that study, we just begin to consider the illustrious reign of King Solomon, uh, a king who brought Israel to its zenith, I believe. Uh, and our study uh, of uh, the Psalms uh, has also brought us, uh, intersected many times, with the life of David that we studied uh, in Second, First and Second Samuel. Uh, but And David wrote a lot of the psalms. Uh, in fact, most of them David wrote. But did you know that Solomon was also a songwriter? Uh, he was a divine songwriter. Uh, in fact, in 1 Kings 4, verse 32, uh, it says that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. So he was right up there in terms of how many songs he wrote. Uh, of course, we don't have all of those songs recorded for us in divine scripture, but we do have two. Uh, second, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127 are ascribed to King Solomon. Uh, so I thought it might be good for us to consider this psalm. Uh, we're going to read it together and then take a couple of minutes and look at some of the things that are taught uh, in the 127th Psalm. Uh, there are some things here, I think, that maybe in, uh, at least... In the not-too-distant past, we studied together, uh, but we'll go over them again as we look at this text. 127th Psalm, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman says stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. As we mentioned before, a couple of observations. One, of course, that Solomon is the author of this particular psalm. Some scholars suggest that, at least from the Hebrew uh, preposition, that maybe it was written by David for Solomon, but most ascribe it to Solomon himself. It's one of a group of psalms known as the Songs of Ascent, um, which uh, most believe were the, or there are 15 psalms in this designation, and most believe that uh, they were songs that were sung uh, by the pilgrims as they came to, to Jerusalem uh, for the three feasts that they were required to attend. And as they came to Jerusalem, of course, they went up because Jerusalem was built on, uh, on hills, and therefore they came up, and so they're called the Songs of Ascent. Uh, so they're tied together. These psalms are tied with the, uh, with the annual feast of the Jews, and they're also tied to the worship at the temple. It's often, I think, helpful to notice as well, as we think about the psalm in general that we've just read, it's helpful help us to know when we see repetitions of words. Hebrew poetry bears that out many times, that that's something that would, ought to catch our attention In the first two verses, the verses we're going to primarily focus on this morning, in the first two verses, there's a word that appears three times, and that's the word vain. It's a word that means empty, means useless. It carries a connotation, though. This is not the same word, that Hebrew word that Solomon uses many, many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. But it carries the connotation not only of something that 
doesn't have any value, but also the idea that it is connected with evil was used in the it's used by Jeremiah to describe idols themselves or idolatry, that they were worthless, they were empty. And the connotation then that this is something that deceives people, something that's vain is something that deceives people to do what is wrong. Keep that in mind and we'll attach that to some of the things we're going to talk about here that Solomon provides for us. But we also notice, I think, that the psalm is really broken up into two very distinct sections. Uh, maybe as we read through it, you notice that. The first two verses, he discusses the uselessness of building and watching. If God's not along, if God's not doing the building, it's a waste of time. If God's not watching, then you're staying awake for no reason at all because you can't be secure. And then in the last part of the psalm, he talks about children, about the family. Uh, the idea here that uh, uh, I think that children are a gift. Uh, we're going to look at the first part uh, of that of this particular psalm uh, this morning, and then the Lord willing tonight, maybe we'll tie it together, which I think is an important part of the psalm. I'm not dividing it here so that we would see necessarily um, the division itself, but uh, to divide it so that we can see the first part so we can better understand how he applies it to the second part, and I believe all on even into the 128th psalm. Diane and I, back when we were younger, built a house together uh, on her father's farm. We had some land there, and so we built a house. And by built a house, I mean that we did everything except lay the foundation. We hired somebody to do the dozer work and lay the block. And I hired somebody to finish my drywall. But other than that, the electric, the plumbing, all the wood, putting on the roof, shingles. We borrowed some people's help, but we did it all. And the reason we were able to do that is because way back at that, in that time, in the early 80s, Lowe's, which was, I think, just beginning uh, to be pro uh, a, a, a somewhat uh, popular home improvement company at that time, they had a program where you could buy the plans to a house. You go in, look at different plans, pick one out, you buy the plans, um, and then they would supply everything that you needed. Uh, they would deliver it when you needed it. They would give you hints on how to do it. They would provide you even a list of tools to do it with. So it was like uh, a one-stop type of thing. You could just buy a house and build it yourself. So like you put together a model airplane. At least that's what I thought. <laughs> this is easy. So the three-month job, a year later, <laughs> we were still putting together this house. But I remember going over and scouring over those blueprints that they had provided and all the list of materials and putting together, okay, this is the material I need for this page and this is the material I need for this page. You know what was never on that list anywhere was that I needed the Lord. <laughs> I prayed a lot, but it wasn't on the list at all. And yet here it is in verse one, the wise man says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Now, my house is still standing. Somebody's still living in it. But if you looked at it, you'd think he needed the Lord. <laughs> Somebody should have told him that. But what does Solomon mean? Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Well, I want us to consider that for a few moments, I think, in terms of uh, not only the idea of uh, Solomon building the temple, but as it applied to the general aspect of building under the divine work of God. The two verbs in verses 1 and 2 are significant. Solomon uses two words to describe what God does. He says that God builds and that he says that God watches. 
Unless God builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. The term build the house, the phrase has at least three meanings in the Old Testament. It's used to describe the building of a literal building. We're reminded, of course, that Solomon was the one who was chosen to build the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem. And as we go, we're going to go ahead and read in our study on Wednesday evening that, uh, that Solomon built that according to God's instructions. David had given him some, as well some advice, instructions on how to do that. But Solomon was very aware that this was God's house. And if, if he was going to be involved in the building, that God had to be, you see, in charge, so to speak. And that its value and its, and its ultimate ability to survive was also in God's hands. In fact, what Solomon and Israel will learn later on, and that we learn by looking back, is that the Israelites, as much as they loved the temple, they could not in any way protect and defend it from their enemies if they turned away from God. So unless the God's building, unless, the God, unless God is watching, then those who are involved in that are simply wasting their time. The word also means to build a nation. The nation of Israel is called the house of Israel. 83 times, even just in the book of Ezekiel. So over and over again, Israel is called the house of God. So God is building Israel as a nation. He made them a special people for himself. He gave them a constitution, a law at Mount Sinai. He protected them, provided them with military conquest of their own land. And in security, you see, he sustained them. But also means to build a family. To build a house means to build a family through child rearing. God promised David that he would build his house in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That it will not be like the house of Saul. I will build your house and you will, you see, one will sit upon the throne from your seed forever. And so David had children and David had grandchildren, great grandchildren. And throughout the history that we're going to look at in the Old Testament, God built the house of David. He sustained the family of David. David couldn't make that happen. He was long gone when that was still going on. But God was building the house. And as long, you see, as God would build the house of David, it, it would survive. The term watch. If God doesn't watch over the city, then those who stay awake to watch are wasting their time. The word watch is from the Hebrew word shamar, which means to guard or to keep secure. It means to protect. So it's not just looking at something. It's looking at something with the aspect here of securing it or protecting it. So watchmen were stationed at the gates and on the walls of a city so that the enemy then approached, they could provide assistance. That, that 24-hour surveillance and looking out could provide warning and therefore provide protection. We still do that today. Our nation has places where they watch. And where surveillance takes place in case the enemy approaches. So both building and both watching is what Solomon says God is doing. But when Solomon says, unless the Lord builds and unless the Lord watches, I don't think he's saying here that you and I shouldn't watch. He's not diminishing or denigrating the aspect of human effort at either one of those particular activities. In fact, I believe what Solomon is really doing here is he's describing human activity in a comprehensive way. That in these two verses, he's, he's telling, he is ultimately putting before us what you and I do over and over and over again as human beings. We build and then we watch. We build families. We build nations. We build our lives. We build careers. We're constantly in the process of building things. For our own benefit. And then we watch over those things, you see. 
then we, you see, protect them and do whatever we need to make sure those things continue to exist and have stability in our life. And so the building and the watching in Solomon's words here are really about us. They're really about our human activity. And what Solomon is saying to us very wisely is, if God is not working with you in this, if God is not involved in this human activity that so permeates our lives and defines who we are, then we are wasting our time. It is vain. It is empty. Burton Kaufman says, verse one here is universal in its meaning, indicating that dependence upon God is vital in all human undertakings. Now, many times we apply these verses to the building of the church, the Lord's body. And I think that's not a bad application of this. Jesus built his church and promised that he would. He engages us in that activity as we go out and preach the gospel and congregations of God's people then come into being because individuals teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we do know is that men have built their own churches through their own efforts upon their own doctrines for their own purposes. And Jesus said, every plant that my heavenly father does not plant will be rooted up. So Solomon would give us a heads up to this for the standpoint of God's building and God's protecting that what God has built for himself and what belongs to him will never cease to exist. It will always be there because God will protect it and watch over it. The churches of men will ultimately fail, and those who join themselves to to them are, in essence, in Solomon's own words, wasting their time. Jesus' church is built through his efforts and according to his teachings. But I think there are other ways to apply these passages as well here. I want us to look at what Solomon says here in the context of our individual, personal lives before God. And I think that's where Solomon takes it. He says in verse 2, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. You rise up early and you don't go to bed till later. (laughs) You know these people, don't you? We all know these people, right? Maybe you are one of these people. You get up at the break of dawn or maybe before it comes up and you go to work and you work hard and you put in a lot of effort and you spend a lot of hours there and maybe you don't come home till after the sun has gone down. There are people that are industrious, hard workers who spend almost all of their day and all of the light time of their day working hard. They have ambition. They're not lazy. What do they get out of all that hard work? What do they get out of all that lost sleep? Well, what Solomon says here in the third use of that term is nothing. (laughs) It is vain. You rise up early. And you go and you work hard. You don't come back until real late at night. And he says, it's vain. Well, how is it vain? Is Solomon saying that hard work is of no value? That there's no, there's, there's no real efficacy in being an ambitious, industrious person? Is he saying even connotatively that the desire for a person to work hard and get ahead is connotatively evil? Again, Solomon is not denigrating work. God commands that we be responsible. If we don't eat, we will, if, if we don't work, we won't eat. And that the person who doesn't supply for his own is worse than an unbeliever. And God tells us to be diligent, to work for our master the same way we would work for the Lord. But what Solomon is telling us here is something that's very important for us to recognize. That in all of that labor and all of that work, if God is not included... If we don't acknowledge God working, 
as both our builder and our protector, then we are wasting our time. He tells us here in the context what we must not do. And I believe this is the, this is the, the distinguishment that we need to see is that we must not eat the bread of anxious toil. You rise up early, you work hard, you stay, till, you stay late. And what ultimately do you do? He says, you eat the bread of anxious toil. The anxiety here is not just worrying what we will do or not just worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. It's an anxiety that is necessarily in the context of Solomon's words associated with our labor. It's in essence saying, if we don't do this, we won't be able to get along. If we don't do this, then then we're not going to be able to make it. It's saying, I want what I want what life has to offer. The only way that I can get what life has to offer is to go to work and to work hard and to sacrifice, to get up early, to stay at the office late and to put in the hours. If you're not willing to sacrifice for that, then you don't deserve it. And you're not going to get it if you don't sacrifice your life for that. That's that attitude. We see it over and over again. That even includes the spiritual work that God would put us to. Is it possible for a person to be doing what God wants them to do and going out and teaching the lost and being involved in spiritual work and to have the attitude that if I don't do this, everything's going to fall apart? That if I'm not spending all these hours on this, then it's never going to succeed. I have to do this. And what Solomon says, that you toil, but there's an associated anxiety with that toil. That you're eating the bread that you earn, but you're eating the bread of anxious toil. And that's not what God wants. In fact, what Solomon says is you're wasting your time. So what is the opposite of that? It's the attitude of dependency and humility that God seeks in every avenue of our life. It's an attitude you see that God is the one who provides the blessing. That God is the one who builds and God is the one who watches. One of those pursuits, one of those attitudes is valuable. It has efficacy. It brings blessing. The other one constantly disappoints us. You know, Jeremiah described Israel as they forsook God's provisions and they put their trust in idols. When they turned away from believing that God was the one who would protect them and God was the one who would provide for them. And they turned to their idols. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountains of living water, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold any water. So they've done two things. They've turned away from being fully convinced that I'm the one who can provide for them, that I'm the fountain of water. And then they've turned to these things that can provide nothing. Now, were they working hard at it? Probably so. But it was useless. So the vanity of eating, eating the bread of anxious toil is not just that it doesn't satisfy, but that also ignores what God gives. When the Lord builds, the building is erected. When the Lord watches over, the building is secure. 
The third verb that Solomon applies in these first two verses that he applies to God is the word gives. For he gives sleep to his beloved. The word for there means this is the reason why you have to believe what I just said. You should not eat the bread of anxious toil. Why? Because God provides sleep for his beloved. You have trouble sleeping? Just wait. (laughs) If you're young, just wait. There'll be those times when you will not be able to sleep. I do many times. What I recognize when I fail to get the sleep that I want is that I really need it. Because the next day is not good if I don't get to sleep. This world is a restless place. This world is a place where you see we have difficulty finding peace and security, where everything is up for grabs and everything might turn around in a moment. And so there's, it's very hard for us to find true rest and peace and even maybe physical sleep in the world in which we live. But what Solomon says is God gives that out. God gives sleep to his beloved. You ever wonder why God created us with people that have to sleep as people that have to sleep? You know, there's some animals that don't have to sleep nearly as much as we do to be able to survive. But the human species, you see, we have to sleep. Particularly, we find that out very early on, right? Babies need to sleep. Sometimes we wish they'd sleep more than they do, but what we recognize is they really need to sleep. How much time do you spend sleeping in your life? Well, the average person spends about 25 years with his eyes closed sleeping. Out of of an average life of 75 years, you spend 25 of that asleep. If you add an additional six years trying to get to sleep, (laughs) you sleep about 31 years of your life. Or at least you spend 31 of your life, years of your life in bed trying to sleep. Now, why did God create us to be people that have to sleep? Well, I don't know that I know all the answer to that. But if I was to look for an answer, I would say I would go to the Sabbath law. That God, for his people Israel, said, okay, you can work six days, but on the seventh day you must rest. You cannot go to work. You must not do any labor. You must keep it holy. Why? What was the purpose of the Sabbath? Was it just physical rest that God knew that in six days people were going to be weary and tired and they need to lay down for a while? Or they need to just take a day off work? It was sort of like an enforced vacation. The Sabbath was about devotion to God. The Sabbath was about looking to what God had done for them. The Sabbath was not a time to look at what I had done, but rather to contemplate on what God was doing. So the Sabbath law was a weekly reminder that their labor, divorced from their trust in God and their dependency on God and their obedience to God, was a waste of time. That's what it's to tell Israel. You need me all the time. So don't go out and collect grain on that seventh day. Put your trust in the fact that I provided for you that six days, the grain that you need for the seventh day, and you rest. You sleep, so to speak. So Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not the man for the Sabbath. But Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said what Solomon says. 
You come to me, all those who are eating the bread of anxious toil, all of you folks you see that are out there working, but you're getting nothing from it. It's valueless. It is, you see, a heavy burden and you are heavy laden. You come to me and you work under my yoke and you will have wet rest. Take my yoke upon you. Recognize that you and I will yoke ourselves together and we will work together. And what the Lord builds will survive. What the Lord watches over has value. So God gave his children a rest from a world that they in a world that they could not find rest. And he gave them a sense of rest that the world could not understand. Jesus told his apostles in Luke, John chapter 14, verse 27, peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus said, I'm going to give you a peace that you can't find any place else. God gives his people his beloved sleep. Now, there are two interpretations of this that God gives of this of, of here of verse two. <coughs> One says that you see that God gives his blessings of rest as they sleep or gives blessings to his people as rest. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. We just looked at that passage that God provides rest for his people. The other interpretation comes from, an, come from another reading of this verse. Uh, the complete Jewish Bible renders verse two as in vain do they get up early and put off going to bed, working hard to earn a living for he provides for his beloved even when they sleep. Today's English version says for God provides for those he loves while they are asleep. And that's the other way to look at verse two. That God provides rest. But here's another thing, way to look at that. Maybe even a more profound way to look at that in the context. And that is that God provides rest. He provides for you and blesses you while you are sleeping. In 2 Kings 19, Hezekiah, the king of Judah, prays to God to defend the city of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is under attack by Sennacherib, the Assyrian army. They were right outside the city walls getting ready to come in. They had already been successful in conquering other nations. And Hezekiah describes how all the other cities had fallen to Sennacherib. Despite their high walls, despite their formidable armies, because the gods that they served were useless gods and they could not defend their city. But Hezekiah says, God can defend our city because we serve the true God. Verse 17, 2 Kings 19, truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have spent their and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. You see, man can set up sentries and he can put up walls and he can try to build and then try to watch over his city. But when it comes time, he will not be able to secure what he's made. And that's what Hezekiah says. But it says, that's not us. We serve a God that does build and does watch over his people. And therefore, God save us so that everybody will know that you are God and you are alone. That's what Hezekiah prayed. Well, what happened? Well, God responded to his prayer by sending an angel into the Assyrian army at night, slaying 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Overnight, the threat was gone. God delivered the nation of Israel while they were sleeping. That's exactly what God said he could do and what he said he would do. 
So God blesses his people. They work hard and they stay up late and they don't go to bed because they can secure what they have. And what God says is, whoa, 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 don't eat the bread of anxious toil. God can give you what you need while you sleep. What problem has God solved for you overnight? What insurmountable thing do you think you couldn't get through that you didn't know what the answer was? And all of a sudden you woke up the next day and you realized while you were sleeping, God took care of that. He just took it away. But what does this lead us? Well, let me close by making a couple observations here real quickly. Solomon was a wise man. He had wisdom from God. And maybe there's a sense in which, as I read this, I ought to say, David, listen to this. This is something for you. This is about your life. Well, what would God want me to get out of this? Here's one thing I would suggest that I think I see in this. that What Solomon's saying is you must be living a certain kind of life. You and I must live an unless the Lord kind of life. Is that what we're living? An unless the Lord kind of life? That's what Solomon introduced. Unless the Lord does this, it's empty. Unless the Lord does this, it's a waste of time. And that's the core thought of this psalm. We have to recognize that living according to, our, to, to, to God is to live in absolute, complete dependency upon Him. Unless the Lord does this, we are wasting our time. That is an element of humility and dependency sometimes that's absolutely absent from our life and yet is so essential to understanding the type of life that God wants us to live. Three reasons why I think this is so important. Provision. Unless humbly we live this kind of life, we cannot and will not acknowledge the provision of God. Where do things come from? Where do you get what you need? You know, a baby starts out not having any problem with that. It lays on its mother's breast and it realizes this is the person that I need. Even as it grows up, it comes to realize that everything that it needs comes from his comes from the parents, from the home. But then you take the baby after a while, a while, some statistics say that within six months, three fourths of babies have already been to the grocery store. (laughs) So you start taking the baby to the grocery store and you get all that stuff at the stores. And then what's happened? Well, that child grows up thinking everything comes from the store or Amazon. But that's where stuff comes from. We start out knowing that it comes from our parents, but then we come to learn or come to believe that it comes from someplace else. And that's precisely, I believe, what happens to us spiritually. We start out believing that God supplies all of this, but then after a while, after living and after getting involved in life, after, you see, getting up early and going to bed late, we come to believe that this stuff comes from our efforts, that that we're the ones that really provide for ourselves. And that's a whole different way of living. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus described the rich fool, the fellow who was real successful in business. What am I going to do about being so successful? I will build barns to put my stuff in. You see, that I made all of this and I can protect it. I can sustain it. I'll watch over it. And what Jesus says, no, unless God does the watching, you can't watch over it. It's vain. A failure to acknowledge that what you and I have, that what you and I have comes from God is a failure to receive the fullness of God's blessing. Because what happens in this provision, you see, is that those who fail to acknowledge that these things come from God fail to go to God to ask for more. But individuals that really understand that everything they have comes from the Lord spend their time on their knees asking God to give more. And guess what he does? He gives more. And that's what Jesus says about prayer. 
He says about prayer here, the idea you see that God already knows what you want, but you go and ask him anyway because he's so anxious to give you what you need that the prayer and the humility and dependency is a part of the process. There's also this aspect of purpose. Living in a less the Lord kind of life is essential because it helps me understand the purpose of my life. What does God want you to do tomorrow? You got a list? I think I got one somewhere. I'm not sure the Lord's on it anywhere, but I got a list of the things to do tomorrow. What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do in the ordinary things of life? In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you walk in them. This is what God wants you to do. He wants you to do good works. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what God wants you to do. He wants you to go out and tell individuals about him and to proclaim the excellency of God in a dark world. How are you going to do that? God wants you to be kind. He wants me to be patient. He wants me to hold my tongue when I ought to hold my tongue. He wants me to pray and put others first, to resist temptation. He wants me to share God's truth, to love and live like Jesus did, to show the image of Jesus to everywhere I go. How am I going to do that? You see, the humble person looks at that list and recognizes what God wants of him and says, I cannot do this without you. There is no way I can do that. And we prove that to ourselves over and over again. Unless the Lord's spirit is leading me, unless the spirit of the Lord is working in me, I am absolutely a failure in all of those things. Unless the Lord is doing it. And then it cannot fail. And so the purpose of my life is based on this concept that unless the Lord does it, it is a failure. And then there is the power of my life. Living in a less the Lord kind of life helps me understand the power of God in my life. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does God expect from you tomorrow? He expects you to bear fruit. How can you do that? All you are is a branch. That's all you are. That's all I am. The only way I can bear fruit that God expects of me is to be connected to the vine and abide in that vine. You think Solomon's words could transform life as we know it? What if my whole life was conditioned to define by the work that God was doing in me and instead of me? Unless the Lord is blessing my job, unless the Lord is watching over my kids, unless the Lord is sustaining my marriage, unless the Lord is in this conversation and watching over everything that I say, unless the Lord's in charge of my bank account, unless the Lord heals me, unless the Lord makes me better. You see how that transforms the way that we live? If in any of those parts of my life, I forget the unless the Lord part, it's a waste of time. Unless the Lord leads the way. Some of Paul's last admonitions to the Thessalonians in his first letter were rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
I submit those here at the end because I believe that if we lived an unless the Lord kind of life, this is what would show. This is what other people would see. We would not be eating the bread of anxious toll. We wouldn't be going around wringing our hands, wondering about what was going to happen tomorrow. We'd be individuals in our lives that were rejoicing, that were praying and asking God for what he needs. That were giving thanks for everything that he'd done. We would be at rest because that's what God gives. We would be working, but we'd be working restfully. Can we do that? Can we work restfully? That's exactly what I believe Solomon would have us to do. We need the Lord. We've always needed him. Unless he leaves heaven, it's a waste of time. Unless he lives without sin through every temptation and every trial while he's here on this earth, then it is all in vain. Unless he's willing to die on the cross, unless he stays on that cross, we have no hope. Unless he rises from the dead, our faith is in vain, and we are of all people most pitiable. Unless the Lord does it, it is all in vain. But you know what? He did it. He did it. So if you're not a Christian, you need to live that kind of life. You need to come to Jesus Christ knowing that you could not be what God wants you to be and will make you unless the Lord has done what he's done. And confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior. Turn away from that anxious, toiling life that you've lived before in sin and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins that you might rise to walk in a new, unless the Lord kind of life, free from sin. Can we help you do that? We're going to sing... Without him, as an invitation song, if we can invite you in any way to be responsible, to be responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to help you. Let's stand and sing.